All right, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7. And uh, if you're going to use one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, that'll be on page 550-something. Uh, so I know we're in the 550s, and that should get you close enough. Um, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, starting in verse 15 today. And uh, as you turn there, I want to share a little bit of, uh, of a reflection on my weekend. I actually flew in late last night, really late. I won't tell you how late, um, but it was late. And uh, I, I had to make a quick trip home. It was unexpected somewhat. Uh, my Uncle Steve, uh, my mom's brother, passed away on Thursday morning at 3 a.m. And uh, Steve had, had lived a, a pretty long life and a really beautiful life. He actually had a condition that we know as, as Down syndrome. And it's a condition that, that really certainly limited him in many ways with his mental and you know, physical capacity. And at the same time, it, it gave him a unique opportunity to glorify God with his life. And it was really a joy to, uh, to reflect on, on how God uh, used him uh, just to teach us many things that are true about God. And true that should be true of us, to love people, to enjoy life, and, and to live with a longing. And uh, as I reflect on, and we all, you know, it was, it was great to, for the whole family to be together, which is always what he wanted. You know, he was certainly pretty confined there. He could get out and do a little bit of work, this and that. But he always wanted the whole family to be together. And so it was a time that, that he would have loved. Uh, but, but we were, of course, reflecting on some of the Steve-isms that, you know, he would say and, and just all the different interests that he had. And, and uh, you can imagine he was, you know, uh, with my grandparents really for all of his life, with the occasional trip, you know, to, to one of his sisters. And, uh, and so that meant that he was, he was pretty much in the home for the majority of, of the time. And so that meant any, any type of office uh, materials that he could gather, technological trinkets. I mean, he just kind of gathered all of that, and he would hang on to it for, for a really long time. Uh, so he had maps and magnifying glasses. Uh, he loved TV. He always had TV guides. And he would, for some reason, I could never figure out, he loved soap operas. Um, so we, we can never kind of figure that one out, but well, actually it probably, probably makes sense. And he would get into the story and whatnot, but, uh, but he also, he also loved, uh, puzzles and, and kind of games that he could work. And, 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 and one of the, the gifts that he received when I was young, I can remember he had this Rubik's cube. Has anyone ever seen one of those? It has, you know, so it's a, it's a cube and, and it has different colored spots uh, on each of the sides. And the challenge is that as that is mixed up, then you can twist it and turn it and maneuver it to hopefully get all of the sides, you know, the colors matching on all the sides. And, and Steve would, would play with that thing for hours. And, and I, I can't remember if he ever got the whole deal, but, but he definitely uh, could at least get, you know, a side or two, you know, worked out, and, uh, and he, he wasn't afraid of a challenge, you know, he was, he was uh, up for a problem that, that could be solved, and, uh, and, and this morning we're going to talk about pro- problem that we face, uh, and, and that problem is, is not just a game or a puzzle, or, or it's, it's a problem that really left to ourselves. Is, is an unsolvable problem. And it's the problem of our sin. And, and so I want you to, 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 to hear from Ecclesiastes this morning, Ecclesiastes 7. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would help us this morning come to grips with the, the problem of our sin and help us find the answer for our sin in the gospel. That's where we're going this morning. This passage is going to give us such a, 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 a comprehensive view of 
the doctrine of sin, the problem of our sin, and we're going to point to uh, the beauty of the gospel even with this as our backdrop. So uh, I want to read the first uh, verse for us, and we're going to dive right in to Ecclesiastes 7. Look in verse 15. This is, this is what he writes. The preacher says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Okay, so let's just stop right there. What, what we're going to see in these, these opening verses is that sin, sin is very problematic. And, and there are a couple reasons why that we're going to see early on here. Sin is problematic because of its complexity on the one hand and its universality on the other hand. All right, and so he, here he goes once again, and he is looking at the world around him, and he's saying, something is not right here. Something has come unglued, unscrewed. This is not the way that it ought to be. And, and, he's, and he's, he's seeing life under the sun, this, this fallen world that we live in. And he, and, he, and he says, hey, bad things happen to good people. And, and good things happen to bad people. And that, that doesn't add up to him. And, and just as a side note here, we can even conclude just from this one simple verse, 715, that the, the picture that the Bible cre- paints of our world leaves no room for this notion of karma. All right, this very prevalent notion in, in, in Eastern religions even creeps into our popular culture. Oh, you'll probably hear it at the workplace and out among your friends, you know, oh, he had to come into this, you know, that's karma, something bad happens because, well, well that's not the, the story that we receive in the Bible. I mean, verse 15 spells that out for us, but just think about the gospel. The gospel tells us that God gives us what we absolutely in no way deserve. And so that is undercut here, even in Ecclesiastes 7. But I think you can catch the tone of despair here. I mean, I mean here he goes, in my vain life, there's this, there's this, 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 this disappointment, this discouragement, this despair that he is facing with, with life under the sun. He's saying, look, why do the, do the good die young? Why do the evil live to an age where they, you know, look like a shriveled up prune, you know? I mean, it's like this doesn't add up to him, and it probably doesn't add up to us much either sometimes. Do you ever, do you ever deal with this? Why did they get that promotion why did she get cancer? I mean, this world we live in doesn't always add up. And it can be maddening and, and, and seem so absurd to us. And so how do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we even deal with this from a, from a Christian worldview? Well, well Psalm 73 p- paints a, a similar dilemma. And if you would, just flip back. It's just a couple books back, right in the middle of your Bible. I want to read several verses out of Psalm 73 uh, because they, it really gives us a great uh, answer for what the preacher is dealing with. So he begins in verse 1, Psalm 73, and, and, he, and, 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 and Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. 
My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Here you go. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See this? There's a dilemma, just like for the preacher. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So, so here's what he's, what he's seeing happening. He's seeing the wicked prosper. And he goes on in verse 12 to, to, to unpack this more for us. He says, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So, so, so let's just stop right there. And let's be honest here. There are so many people in the world that get so discouraged, so jaded, so cynical over this world that we live in. Because they're like the preacher. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. This isn't fair. And what they often do is they throw their arms up and they say, man, this isn't right. I don't get it. Surely there must not be a God. If there is a God, then he must not, you know, he or she or whoever they are, they must not give a rip about us. And if people aren't lifting their arms up in confusion and desperation, they're probably lifting their fists up, wanting to contend with God. God, if you're so good, if you're so powerful, Why don't you do something about this, God? And Psalm 73 is is hinting at this type of sentiment. Why do the the wicked prosper? And just when when he's at this point of wearisome despair, check out verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What's the end for the wicked? Well, verse 18, truly truly you set them in slippery places. You will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. So what the psalmist is saying here, Asaph is saying, look, there will be justice for the wicked. I mean, we we may not see it immediately, but God is just. And there will be a judgment for us all. And then you say, well, if that's the plight of the wicked, then what about the righteous? Well, the psalm is too good not to finish. Move on down to verse 25. Actually, 23 says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works." And so how do we deal with the injustices in our world? How do we deal with suffering and, 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 and making sense of it all? Well, we seek to see life from God's perspective. We come into the sanctuary of God. I mean, we meet with God and we get our perspective 
altered and realigned with his. We ask the question, why is this world so fallen? Why does it not add up? I would propose to us this morning that that the blame should not be laid at the feet of God. The blame should be laid at our feet. Sin entered the world. The sin that we see, that we carry within us, has made this world not the way that it was supposed to be in the beginning. And so verses 16 and following are going to begin to unpack the complexity of sin. And, and we're going to see a couple different ways that, that, uh, that sin is really a complex uh, reality for us. What, what does he say in, in verse 16? Check this out. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So here's the complexity of sin. On the one hand, we can be overly righteous. There is a sin in being too righteous. And you say, hold on just a minute. Like, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't add up. It almost sounds blasphemous. How could someone be too righteous? How could they, don't miss the reflexive verb here, make themselves too wise? And, and, and here we even can skip ahead to the New Testament and understand that this, this some of Jesus' harshest critique were for the religious leaders of his day. They, they, they looked really, really good on the outside, but they were seeking to, to, to establish a righteousness of their own. And so they thought through moral reform and through a, 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 an amount of good deeds, a facade that everything is together in their life spiritually, that that would be their justification before God. They wrongly thought that they could change themselves from the outside in, not understanding that God must change us from the inside out. And we have this problem in our hearts, all of us. We are bent to establishing a righteousness of our own. And you say, how does that work for a Christian? I mean, are you serious? Is this, well... We sometimes think, God, won't you love me? Won't you accept me? Won't you forgive me? Won't I look better in your eyes if I do X, Y, and Z? And all of a sudden, our religion becomes this moralistic effort to be approved in the sight of God. And God is screaming to us, look, you're just not good enough. And I've made a way for you to be right with me. And so operate in the righteousness of Christ. And, and then that's where it flows from, when our heart is changed from the inside out. And so there is a way to be overly righteous. And, and it really exposes what we would not think is an aspect of our sin, but it is. It's the complexity of sin. And another way, a more obvious way we see in verse 17, he says, Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So you have, on the one hand, being overly, overly religious. On the other hand, you have being irreligious. In other words, God, you want this for our lives. You've prescribed these commands. And you know what? Forget about that. Man, I'm done with that. I don't, give a, I don't, I don't care about that. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to neglect and forsake your commands. And we deal with this too, right? 
This is, this is what Jesus talked about in Luke 15. Go back and read the story of the prodigal son. It's not just about a son, okay? It's, it's really the story of a loving father who has two sons. And there is the prodigal son who is verse 17 here. He's irreligious. He, he gets the inheritance from his father. He runs out. He squanders in a wild living. He's irreligious. But then you have this, this older son, this elder brother, who when the son actually comes to his senses and returns and repents and asks forgiveness and, and the father amazingly runs to his son and, and expresses the love of God to us, you have this older brother who is upset about it. How could you do this? He, he, he made this decision. Why should he receive grace and mercy? And the elder brother is verse 16. He's the, he's the one who thinks that righteousness can be attained by our good works. And so here's the cool thing about Ecclesiastes and about Jesus is that they offer a third way, a better way, the way of wisdom and the fear of God. Check out verses 18 and 19. This is, this is what he writes. And he's, he's trying to encourage us here to not miss what he just said. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that with not, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than ten rulers who are in a city. So, so do you see this? On the one hand, you have the overly righteous. On the other hand, you have the unrighteous, the irreligious. And then the third way is the best way. It's the way that we should set our lives on. It's, it's the fear of God. To fear God is to escape both of these wrong paths and to get on the path that God desires for us. And as the, the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, this wisdom, uh, this, this fear of God leads us to the path of wisdom, what God has for us in the beginning. And the beautiful thing is when, when God's wisdom, I hope you want this, by the way, when God's wisdom fills your heart, you can have more strength than 10 civic leaders around us. I mean, you know, hey, look, I'm not hating on anybody here, all right? So don't, you know, like record this and well, it'll be online anyway. So maybe the mayor will hear this. Um, I doubt it. Maybe he will. Mayor Michael McGlynn, all right? I've met him. Seems like a pretty nice guy. Don't know a lot about his politics. Don't know a lot about the history here, but, but, but it's conceivable and quite probable that Mayor McGlynn is just not the, 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 the wisest man in the city. Governor Deval Patrick, probably not the wisest man in, in the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You, you, know, you look at Senator Brown, and on and on we could go. It doesn't matter the party that we're talking about or their political views. I mean, w- the point that he's making here is that a wise person has more strength. They can, they can get more done. They have more wisdom, more efficiency. They can be more important than even the, the community leaders. Why? Because they have wisdom. They, they see life from God's perspective. They live life according to God's intentions. And it's something that we should ask for God, for, from God daily, that he would fill our lives with wisdom. So now, not to your surprise, before we get too positive here on the fear of God and living life with wisdom, the, the preacher is going to kind of bring us back down to reality and life under the sun. He doesn't want it to be you know, too positive here. And he's going to provide a balanced perspective on this pursuit of the wise life. And what does, he, what does he say in, in verse 20, 21, and 22? Here we go. He says, but surely 
there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. Do you see this? Sin is complex. It has a variety of faces as we saw in the the, the first few verses, but now we see the universality of our sin. Sin is in every one of us. Surely there is no one who does good and never sins. This is played out all throughout Scripture. And, 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 and what a strong claim we have in verse 20. And then 21 and 22 kind of provide a case study here. He says, look, you know, if you, if you listen well enough, you're going to hear those that work for you, your servants, even cursing your name. And, and, and man, when we hear that, what happens? Man, we're heated. What are, they, what are they talking about? They don't know me? What? And then in verse 22, he says, well, well, hold up. You know in your heart that you've done the same thing to others. Don't you, don't you see this? You get angry about people getting angry. You want someone to forgive you, and yet you're not willing to extend forgiveness. This actually happened to me in the airport. It was about 6 a.m. Friday morning, and I uh, made it to the airport on time, thank the Lord, and um, had to get a cup of coffee. America runs on Duncan, and I do too, and it's 6 a.m. and had about four hours sleep. Maybe, no, four hours sleep. And, uh, and so it's a pretty long line. We have plenty of time right there near the gate. And, uh, and I just noticed that there is this kind of uh, plexiglass um, divider between the counter and the coffee machines. And it was pretty unstable. And it has a little sticker, do not lean on the glass. And there's this, you know, bozo right there who's just, you know, leaning on the glass. I'm thinking... Dude, did you, I mean, the sign is, you know, 17 inches from his eyes. Like, how does he, how does he not see this here? And I'm kind of getting, you know, a little self-righteous. Like, you, you idiot, why can't you see this? Why won't, you know, just abide by the, the, the expectations here. And then, and then all of a sudden as I'm doing that, I find myself leaning up on the, the drink machine. And I'm thinking, yeah, this guy's probably pretty tired. He's probably pretty weary. He's probably, you know. You probably missed the sign. And we do this all the time. It's, it's, the, it's the, the problem of sin. What, is, what does the Bible say about sin? Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus in John 8 says that we, apart from his grace, are slaves to sin. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. In Romans 3, we already read, he says, look, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Listen, why is this so important? Why why would we spend a whole sermon basically on the doctrine of sin? Well, it's the passage and we just preach the Bible here, but... But, but, but why is this so important? Well, we'll check this out. There is a story, a meta-narrative, a, a, a narrative, a story over all the stories of the Bible that, that tell us that God created everything in us and, and he made all of us for his glory. 
But the second plot move is where we are today. There is creation and then the fall. We have rebelled against God. We have sinned against God. And if we do not understand this plot move, we will never understand next Sunday's sermon about the climax of redemption in Christ on the cross. So we have to understand this. If we think we're inherently good, the cross will never make sense to us. We have to understand the depravity of our hearts. I mean, just think about where we've been in Ecclesiastes. He's, he's unpacked all of these, all of these uh, different you know, schemes that, that, that uh, he has um, you know, painted, a, painted a picture for us. And, and we need to come to grips with the reality of the situation. We're not, we're not good. Sometimes I think we're moral cowards. We, just, we don't want to face the reality of the situation. If we're not moral cowards, then, then we're just super deceived. We think, oh, they're not that bad. Or if we're not deceived at that level, if we think, oh, yeah, they don't have it all together, we think, oh, their badness isn't that bad. In other words, there's not that many consequences to their sin, but clearly, clearly there are. Because God is holy and God is just. And he must deal with sin and punish sin. The beauty of the gospel is that he has dealt with it in Christ that we might have life. And so as as we're talking about this doctrine, look, you might be asking some questions. Well, what does this mean then? Does this mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be? The answer is no. Does it mean that we have no capacity to do something nice for someone? The answer is no. I mean, God created us with a conscience. He, he created us in his image. We have a capacity for morality. He, he, has, he gives us common grace, persevering, uh, restraining grace all around us. This world is actually not as bad as it could be because God is so good. But at the same time, we do see how complex and how universal sin is. And you know, you know, you know, just looking in your own life, that sin is a big part of it. So that's the, that, that's the, the, the complexity and the, and, the, and the universality of sin. That's one reason sin is so problematic. But then, but then number two, and this will take us through the rest of the chapter, sin is problematic because it distorts God's design for humanity. All right, don't, don't miss this. Sin is problematic because it distorts God's design for humanity. So we mentioned Genesis 1, creation, and, and we know that we are made in the, the image of God. We are this beautiful work of God, this masterpiece. And what sin does is sin takes a ton of paint cans, one after the other, and it just throws it on the work of, work of art that God has made. There's distortion. Things are not clear. And we see this in several ways in the passage. The, the first distortion that we see is that we have corrupted minds. All right, check, check out verse, verses 23 through 25. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. Remember, he's on this pursuit. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and, and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He can't understand it all. Move on down to verses 27, the first part of 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found it out. In other words, he's trying to understand, but he can't understand the world around him, the ways of God. 
And this is true for us, right? I mean, even the things that we understand, we don't really understand. And you say, hold on, I don't understand. Or, or maybe others of you are saying, hold up, Tanner, you don't understand. Like, what are you, what are you saying here? Well, we even, even the good things that we understand of, of God and who he is and, and the relationship, even our own existence, we, don't, we can't plumb the depths of those. We don't have the ability to fully understand. We have fallen minds. Our rational capacities don't work as well as they could work because of the fall. And this is pretty hard for us to hear, right? I mean, this is Boston after all. I mean, the intellectually elite are here. And let me just kind of encourage us here to not be too proud. In fact, to not be proud at all. Because God gives us grace to have a mind that, that, that works really well. And, and, and there's no reason to, to, to lift ourselves up as if we've produced this in our, in our own uh, right. So we have corrupted minds. Number two, we have corrupted desires. Look at verse 26. He says, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. You can flip back. We're not going to do it right now. You can go back and read Proverbs 6. The, the Solomon has given instruction to his son, and he says, you better watch out for the forbidden woman because she will try to ensnare you. I mean, just, I mean, you can just read this verse, and the imagery is enough. It makes the point. I really don't need to say much here. She will ensnare you. She will, she will put fetters around your wrist and feet. And she will set a trap for you. And if you do not flee from the the lustful desires of your heart, you are in major trouble. We know this is a temptation. It's not just for men, by the way. It's for ladies, too. Pornography, fantasies. I mean, or you can just, you know, the hot girl or guy walking down the street. Let's not act like we're not, we're not either all there or haven't all been there. Or we won't be tempted all to be there. We have corrupted minds, corrupted desires. And then distortion number three, we have corrupted actions. Look at verse 28 again, the end of it. He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. It's, it's kind of a hyperbolic way of saying that what he just said in verse 20 that there is no one who will live a perfectly moral life. We, we, just, we just don't have the capacity for it. We have a corrupted mind, corrupted desires, corrupted actions. And then number four, we have corrupted pursuits. I want you to, I want you to, to really know verse 29. It's our meta-memo verse for this week. Look at what, what, how, how this chapter ends, and this is so good. He says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out Many schemes. The end of verse 29, this is our focus here. We have corrupted pursuits. He says that, that man has sought out many, many schemes. In other words, we have, we have many plans, many purposes, many endeavors that are not really lining up with God's will for our life. It's a, it's a summary statement of, of everything that he's unpacked. And, and really, again, this takes us from Genesis, Genesis 3 here all the way to 2013, all right? I mean, just into the future. I mean, this is, this is the reality for us. We've seen this in Ecclesiastes. Sex, money, power, prestige, reputation, pleasure. 
you name it. All of these different pursuits that that don't add up. And remember, what the preacher is doing here in his quest to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose of life is he's short-circuiting our pursuits. He's saying, look, I've been there and I've done that and it doesn't provide ultimate meaning and satisfaction and purpose. It doesn't provide this reason to live that we all deeply long for. It ultimately won't satisfy us. So let me just ask you this morning, I mean, do you see this? Do, do, you, do you really see your own depravity? I mean, this, it seems like such a weird way to pray, but it's actually a great way. Like, God, show me my sin. Show me where I don't have it together. Help me to know the depravity of my heart so that I might forsake this greater affection that I have for the stuff of the earth. And I might change my life. I might see you change my life in such a way that, that now the, the things of the world and, and these lesser pursuits, they don't dominate my thoughts. They don't dominate my calendar. They don't dominate my conversation. Because now you are king and it's you that I worship and, and it's only in you that all of these other little lesser pursuits make sense in the first place. So we've talked about how we all have a worship problem. We all allow these other pursuits to supplant the rightful place of God. We sought out many, many schemes. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with this? A corrupted mind, corrupted desires, corrupted actions, and corrupted pursuits. I mean, what does this all lead to? Well, I'm no mathematician, okay? I can't bust out, you know, Turingian algorithms like maybe some of you know, our, our uh, crew could here at Redemption Hill, uh, but I can break down a little theological ed- equation for you. Okay, you ready for this? A corrupted mind plus corrupted desires plus corrupted actions plus corrupted pursuits equals a corrupted picture. You say, what do you mean? This is what I mean. This is why 29 is so important. This alone I found. God made man upright. This is not the way it was from the beginning. God made us in his image, and we were perfectly, wonderfully, beautifully made to reflect him, to glorify him with our lives. This is what he wants for us. But sin has entered into the equation has distorted the beautiful picture that God had intended. Sin, listen, sin is is all around us, but it's not just all around us. It is in us. And now the image of God in us is marred and it is tainted. And we do not reflect God like we should. And so... The question becomes, well, what do, what do we do then? If, if we live a life with this corrupted picture because of the depravity of our hearts, then, then what's the answer for us? And this is where the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God come in and, and the glory of God comes in in the face of Jesus Christ, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Why? Why? Well, here's, here's the, the gospel 
answer to the problem of our sin. In the gospel, we can realign our life, our heart, our desires, our mind, our pursuits with the heart of God. How does it happen? It happens through Jesus. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death in our place that we might realign our life and our relationship back with God. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20. Listen to what he says here. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him. It's it's here on the screen here for us. I want you to to see this so you get it uh, this morning. Let me, let me back up and read it again. Here we go, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What were we taught? Here's what we were taught. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And true righteousness and holiness. Do you see this? Do you see how God brings it all back together? These threads that have come undone, He weaves them back together in the gospel. That through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, now we. If we are in Christ, we are putting off the old self, putting on the new self and the strength that he supplies. And what is happening here is that the image of God is being renewed in us. And ultimately, one day, we will not only go from justification, being counted righteous because of what Jesus has done and our reception of that through faith by grace, and now this reality that for those in Christ live in the sanctification where we're being made new, just what we read here. But one day, we will be perfectly glorified and the image of God will be true and pure and beautiful and we will glorify him in the way that he intended. This happens through Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the only one who can rescue us and save us and renew the image of God in us. I hope you know him today. If you don't, we, we need to have a talk <laughs> because he, he desires to, for you to know this and to live this and to be right with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word. And God, I just ask that, that you would show us, Lord, show us our sin. Show me my sin. God, I don't think like you want me to think all the time. I don't desire like you want me to desire all the time. I, I certainly get led astray by pursuits that are not of you. My actions aren't what they ought to be so many times. And so, Lord, would you, would you show us our sin? And then, God, would you... Would you even greater than that would you show us Jesus and teach us the gospel again and, and help us to run to him and find life in him and, and that, that, that we might bring glory to you that's the point of it all fearing you keeping your commandments bringing glory to your great name that's the point of it all so God may we rejoice now in Jesus for the good work he's done in his name we pray amen